Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode, How to Grow Old in America, written by Jeff Dyer and read by Chris Stone. It was first published on the New Statesman website on the 15th of June, 2022. In October of last year, shortly after correcting the proofs of my new book, The Last Days of Roger Federer, I decided to follow in the great man's footsteps and have surgery. Strictly speaking, I was following in the footsteps of Novak Djokovic and Stefanos Tsitsipas in that I would be having surgery on my elbow, left, rather than a knee, but that's just an anatomical detail. I'd been suffering from gradually worsening tennis elbow from the autumn of 2020. On Christmas Eve, my primary care physician the American version of a GP, administered a steroid injection which cured it almost instantly for about six weeks. Then, like COVID, it came surging back even more instantly, mid-game. Early on in life, my parents had taught me that a bad workman always blames his tools, so my first impulse was to blame my racket. I'd hurried out of the house and had cycled to the courts in Santa Monica, only to discover, when I got there, that I'd brought my old racket, the one I used before devoting many hours to searching the internet and speaking to the knowledgeable staff at Tennis Warehouse in an attempt to find whichever rackets and strings were easiest on elbow and shoulder. I'd also had shoulder problems. That old racket was notoriously tough on both. You shouldn't even be looking at that racket if you don't want to strain your eyeballs, a shop assistant had explained, before directing me towards more forgiving options. But here I was, not just looking at it, but like a lapsing addict, once again wielding this suicidally lethal weapon. It's more likely that it wasn't the racket. Steroid injections tend to wear off after six weeks, especially when the problem is exacerbated by poor technique, which typically means taking the ball late. Good players take the ball early on the rise. As I've got older, I've taken the ball later and later, partly because I need more time to see it. The sales assistant was right to bring the eyes into play. On whatever is the opposite of the rise, subjecting the elbow to more and more strain, thereby accelerating the dip, the decline and fall of which this trajectory is both technical expression and metaphor. 
After this relapse, I saw a physical therapist who'd fixed my elbow years earlier by unexpectedly jiggling some bones in my wrist, this time without success. My wife and I came to England for a long summer, where I saw another physio who worked a side hustle in acupuncture. My elbow got a bit better, but not well enough to play tennis. Then, and this is very common, particularly among the um, middle-aged, I began two-timing this physical therapist, seeing a younger woman who offered similar but slightly more vigorous exercises. At first, this was rejuvenating, but then the deception and strain proved too much, and like a man whose love affair leaves him with neither wife nor mistress, I ended up having to say goodbye to both of them. The elbow got worse and worse. I had just turned 63, and my tennis life was in tatters. In September, we returned to America where, partly in response to the culture of endless affirmation and optimism, and partly because of the availability of extraordinary medical care, I saw my doctor, the steroid doctor, again. He booked me in for an MRI the following week. The day after the MRI, I saw the orthopaedic surgeon, who, to my astonishment, was younger than me, and listened as he outlined the diagnosis and options. The MRI showed tears. I could do this... I could do that, all of which I'd tried, without success, before. That left surgery. Clean everything out, mend the tear, use a pin to fix the tendon to the bone. If all went well, I'd be playing tennis again in three months. With American healthcare, the distinction between being offered a cure and being sold a product is often hazy, but since I'd exhausted all other possibilities this side of Lord's, I booked in for an operation the following Friday. But there was a scare along the way. When I called to check the details of my insurance cover, I was told the operation would come to somewhere north of $90,000. Since it was going to cost an arm and a leg to fix my arm, I said, I'll abandon the operation and soldier on with the defective one. No, no, came the reply. There had been a misunderstanding. That was the total cost. The insurance would cover all of that, except for a payment of about $1,000. It was a business-class experience at the hospital in Santa Monica. Nothing at all like the scenes in the BBC's This Is Going To Hurt. Medical hurt in America is overwhelmingly financial. If you have good health insurance, you're effectively anaesthetised against it. Wheeled into the operating theatre, your only concern is the freezing cold in what looks like both the inside of a spaceship and the cleanest place on Earth. It's really fantastic. You might as well have a facelift while you're at it. For half a million bucks, you could probably get a soul transplant thrown in, or at least a little soul rejuvenation tuck. Even though you're doing absolutely nothing except lying there with tubes in your arm, a team of efficient and happy people keep telling you that you're doing great. You make a mental note to be more encouraging to your students, not to keep writing pedantic stuff like Grammar! This is not a sentence! or angrily crossing out relatable every time one of them uses it in an essay. Sedatives have been administered, but you feel more calmly alert, more consciously conscious than at any moment in your life. As for the anaesthetic, you breathe through the mask, you're doing great, and the next thing you know, you're coming around, back to where you started in the business class departure lounge, which has turned, in the blink of an eye, into an arrival lounge. The rich and youthful surgeon came by. I listened closely to his instructions about what not to do. 
There was no hint of drowsiness, no need to take notes. I could have followed a lecture on how to assemble an Ikea wardrobe without even looking at the diagrams. I'd start physical therapy in two weeks, he said. The most important thing, in the meantime, and for another month after that, was not to open jars. The twisting and gripping motion was the worst possible action. But the worst news, and it was news, this had not come up during his sales pitch, was that I would not be able to ride my bike for six weeks, because applying the brake would be like twisting a jar. My arm was in a big spongy bandage in a sling, and I was in a wheelchair. The nurse wheeled me outside to the car where my wife was waiting behind the wheel. Getting in the car was meant to be done with extreme caution, but I could have vaulted into a virile convertible. Another sign of how good I felt was that within five minutes I started a quarrel about something that wasn't my wife's fault. At the hospital pharmacy, as instructed, she dutifully picked up basic painkillers, stronger painkillers, opiates, anti-constipation tablets and anti-nausea tablets designed to offset the side effects of the opiates. We'd been watching Dope Sick on TV, so I was frightened of developing some kind of addiction. But mainly I was outraged at the expense, $170, and how we were getting screwed by Big Pharma and an endless panacea of pills and side effects, pills to offset side effects and more pills to offset the side effects of the other pills. All of which meant, according to a tennis friend who'd had painful knee surgery, not Roger, that the crap he'd finally had, after the ensuing constipation, was so monstrous that he'd had to shell out another 500 bucks to get an emergency plumber to unblock the overwhelmed toilet. Having got that off my chest, we drove home in the sun-dazzled traffic and I took up residence on the sofa. We ate dinner and watched TV, I brushed and flossed my teeth and we went to bed. Sleeping was awkward, I didn't want to roll onto my arm, but there was no pain. The next morning, I woke in agony. I couldn't bend my arm more than a few degrees. I was glad we had the strong painkillers. It was a strange, normal and rather strange weekend. We drove up to a little country music festival near Santa Barbara but left before Ryan Bingham, the person we had wanted to see, came on and drove back home. The post-anaesthetic clarity had a quality of befuddlement about it, as if past and present might easily be reversed. On Sunday night, my wife flossed my teeth. There's a reason for all the narrative attention being paid to teeth flossing, an activity so rarely seen in films it's practically taboo, and there is a reason I was in the state I was. Unprepared for the trauma of surgery, I had gone from someone with a gammy elbow to a frail invalid, an old person, incapable of washing his right armpit or using a knife and fork. I was in a tiz of constant terror about accidentally bashing my elbow, especially after we took off the big protective padding. A few days later, we also removed the masses of cotton wool to reveal the dressing strip. My wife, who is not squeamish, recoiled somewhat at what was revealed. After two weeks, I went to see the surgeon, who said that everything looked great. But it felt odd, I said, a tugging sensation. Could it be, I asked, that the recklessly compulsive act of flossing my teeth that first night when an abundance of local anaesthetic and anti-inflammatories meant I was able to move my arm in a way that had by the next morning become completely impossible, could it be that I had torn the tendon from the pin on the day it had been attached, or the pin from the bone even? That was impossible, he said. Everything would ease with physical therapy, which began the following week. 
The speed with which all procedures and appointments had been made was extremely impressive, as was the speed with which my arm, always skinny but not without a kind of sinewy strength, had atrophied. "'Behold, mine arm is like a blasted sapling withered up,' I said to Jafari, the young therapist who had clearly completed his training only a few weeks previously. He was actually forty-eight, and in the coming months we got to know each other rather well. Life settled into a pattern. I saw Jafari twice a week. There were nights of weird and excruciating pain, difficult to describe, little scribbles of agony pulsing and shooting, amid the persistent dull and eventually unnoticed ache. I was able to bend my arm slightly more each week. I could straighten it. I could brush my teeth with my left hand again. I kept harping on to Jafari about the possible self-inflicted harm done by first-night flossing. Seconding the surgeon, he said that was impossible. But I had entered a world in which anything seemed possible, except a return to health and tennis. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman for just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like The New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Six weeks after surgery, having regained something close to full mobility, I began trying to build up my strength. Before describing this great leap forward, however, we need to take a step back. Like many emigres from the United Kingdom, Christopher Isherwood was struck by the ameliorative imperative sunbaked into Californian life. Visiting a friend in hospital, he was told by the nurse that the patient was not doing too well. When Isherwood asked if he'd suffered a relapse, she admitted... It's a little worse than that. He passed away. Now that I was actively involved in my own recovery, I was not doing too well either. There's a certain delicate balance to be achieved in physical therapy between pushing through certain kinds of pain in order to repair damage, breaking down scar tissue, and not pushing so hard into other kinds of pain that cause new damage. This requires great attention to your body. I kept mentioning the tugging pain near where the pin had gone in, but progress was being slowly made. Eventually, Jafari said I could swing my racket round at home. The following week, I went and hit against a wall for about ten minutes, the first time I'd been able to hit a tennis ball in six months. That was the high point of my recovery, after which my arm began to hurt in several ways. I had to scale back the exercises and seemed gradually to be going backwards, downhill, in reverse. From this point on, the task of building up physical strength became less important than concentrating on being mentally strong in a stoical English way, strong enough to resign myself to never playing tennis again, which also involved a larger farewell to vigorous corporeal life. I kept thinking of my dad, who famously, famously within our family, I mean, said he didn't believe in physical therapy. In his 70s, he'd had a hip replacement that didn't work, This was not a surprising outcome. He'd had the operation just because it was available, because he was entitled to it, without any serious expectation of being able to walk properly again, and, in truth, he made little attempt to do so. He remained in pain for the last years of his life, though the pain of the hip was nothing compared with the ulcer in his leg and the psychological pain of a colostomy bag and macular degeneration. The final ration of hurt came when he fell over and broke a couple of ribs, After he'd been in hospital for a few days, I went to Paris for a couple of nights. When I called the hospital, the receptionist on the ward said he was fine. In fact, he'd just done some physio. I should have realised something was wrong. That didn't sound like him, when she said this. Later the next afternoon, on the train back to England, a nurse called to say that I needed to hurry back. He died of pneumonia a few hours before I got there. As I sat next to him, next to his dead body, empty now after ninety years of use... I found myself thinking of another time he'd been in hospital decades earlier. He was propped up in bed, in his pyjamas, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Here in the land of private medicine, I had wondered if I'd been sold a product. Three months after the operation, I worried that I'd been sold a pup. Sissipas had come back from his elbow surgery in two months. For someone who'd spent seven minutes taking a bathroom break in a match against Andy Murray... What's he doing in there? Murray wanted to know, quite reasonably. This was remarkably fast. 
Now, just when I was scheduled to be back on court, I felt that were I not recovering from surgery, I'd be making an appointment to discuss having surgery. I was not, as they say, the man I was. I'd always been fit, thin, athletic, and sufficiently young-looking in 2017 to dance at a club in Berlin with my shirt off. I trimmed my eyebrows, plucked all hairs from my ears, scrupulously shaved my neck to avoid furry neck syndrome. But all of this was just fiddling while Rome burned, rearranging the deck chairs while a titanic, potentially catastrophic physical decline was being played out. About 15 years earlier, my main tennis partner, Dan, had dislocated his knee, and although he made a brief comeback, that was the beginning of the end for him, tennis-wise, and my elbow looked like being the end of the end for me. If I'd played tennis again, I'd had to learn a two-handed backhand to reduce the strain on my forearm. The alternative, if things didn't improve, would be to learn to play with my right hand. At 63... I thought of Socrates on the night before he was due to drink the hemlock, learning a new tune on the flute and being asked what good that was going to do him. In America, the urge to improve, to get better in every sense, is inseparable from coming up with new ways to persuade you to part with your money. On trying to perfect your body, yoga, cross-training, pilates, mind and house, by emptying both of clutter, there is the assumption that, whatever your age, you can continue to invest in your future – By getting in shape, improving your swing, tennis, golf, life is a lesson and you have to keep learning. But one of the lessons I've learned from life is that I don't like taking lessons. I used to love playing table tennis and while living in Texas, had a lesson once a week for about six weeks. The only significant lesson I learned from this was that I didn't have much interest in improving my table tennis. What I liked was playing with my friends or making friends with people I played with. I also liked thinking that I could still be attractive to women half my age. This, the reader exclaims, was not only a delusion, but a deeply unattractive one. If so, it's a delusion from which I no longer suffer. To the extent that it could be said that the surgery, the opposite of cosmetic, has worked, even this was not its intended purpose. At roughly the time that Covid was said to have become endemic, something we would have to learn to live with It looked like I would have to learn to live with a pervasive sense of infirmity. My elbow woes have obliged me to see myself as I am. In classes with graduate students looking at their black hair, vicariously animated by their voracious appetite for literature, I forget that I'm a grey-haired senior, vulnerable to Covid, but also eligible for compensatory discounts and even a certain amount of sympathy. One of these students, a mother in her mid-thirties, recently had a hip replacement. On the one hand, it seemed a bit precocious to have a hip replaced at her age. On the other, her youth enabled her to make a fast-tracked recovery. While she was literally up and running again in six weeks, I seemed destined to follow in my dad's lack of footsteps. I thought of him again last weekend when I was at Bombay Beach on the Salton Sea, a once thriving resort since fallen into such an advanced state of dereliction that it acquired a post-apocalyptic charm which is leading now to signs of avant-garde regeneration. One of these signs is the festival there, run by my friend Tao Raspoli. The festival is wild, but there are lectures in the mornings and afternoons, and I agreed to give a talk. After my event... Looking out over the pristine desolation of the Salton Sea, 
Tao told me how, when his sister was born, he'd asked his dad if he intended to have more children. Maybe in a few years, his dad replied. For now, let me enjoy my youth. Three years later, he did indeed have another child, at the age of 73. Bombay Beach is small, and there's always a shortage of quiet accommodation. With this in mind, Tao had booked me and a couple of other distinguished speakers into a place a few miles away, called the Fountain of Youth, an age-restricted resort, accessible only to those who are 55 and over. It was a soul-destroying experience, a form of sunny-side-up ego death to eat breakfast there, watching all these old people, some of whom were younger than me, enthusiastically keeping body and soul together in the cryogenic pool. Gore Vidal mocked F. Scott Fitzgerald for whining on in his notebooks about how he was young and now he's middle-aged. That now seems to me an entirely worthy theme, perhaps the biggest one there is. I received a copy of my book yesterday. Flicking through the many pages about endings, I realised the question that kept recurring was, what happens after the end? As it happens, I have a specific answer to the elbow question. Five months after surgery, I'm doing not great, but a lot better, certainly. I resumed the physio exercises without setbacks. I could feel myself getting stronger, less worried, more confident. I started hitting against the wall again, and while doing so got cruised by a guy who asked if I wanted to hit with him. This complete stranger, an overweight fellow who looked pretty old but was probably younger than me, had no idea, until I told him, of the historic significance of what was about to take place. Namely, that I would be playing tennis again. We rallied for half an hour, until, fearful of the potential hangover, I thought it prudent to stop. My arm, the next day, felt okay, partly because of the excruciating pain in my right knee. How to Grow Old in America was written by Jeff Dyer and read by me, Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to Jenny Kleeman's piece, Big Tech and the Quest for Eternal Youth, which is linked in the show notes. This has been Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by May Robson. The piece was commissioned by Melissa Deans, and the executive producer was Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe, and rate the show. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.